0: We are in Mark chapter 1, and the verses that we're going to be covering this morning are going to be somewhat familiar for you. Last week, of course, we were up at Mountain View Bible Camp, and so uh, we kind of took a step away from our series, but we are going through a series on the Gospel of Mark. And though I, wouldn't, I didn't intend necessarily to spend four weeks in the first chapter, uh, that's what the Lord has done. And I hope, well, we'll see what happens throughout the rest of the way. Mark is a short uh, gospel, of course. It's only 16 chapters, and some of the chapters are uh, shorter than in the other gospels. But today, I really want to focus and look back on the verses that we looked at two weeks ago. Those being the last verses of, the, of this first chapter, uh, verses 16 through 45. And last week, or two weeks ago I should say, we looked at these verses through the lens of Jesus' salvation. We noted all of the ways and all of the, the, the manners in which Jesus intervenes in our lives suddenly. We noted how he intervenes in these lives of the disciples in verses 16 through 20. In just a sudden way that he comes into the life and they are immediately charged with following him. And they immediately do so. We also notice all of the times and the ways in which Jesus intervened in the lives of those who are afflicted with either demon possession or perhaps some sort of illness and he heals them instantly. He doesn't wait for anything to be accomplished on their part. He cleanses them immediately or as is often repeated in this chapter straightway which is the same word. And we noted uh, two weeks ago how both of those are representative of the salvation that we have in Jesus. That when he saves us, he does so immediately by the power of who he is. We are instantly cleansed from sin. We are instantly committed to God's kingdom work. That's what happens when we get saved. And I pray we never forget and we never get over how remarkable it is to be saved immediately, to be saved straightway. That you don't have to do anything extra right here, right now as we sit. We are sons and daughters of the king, employed in his work right now. And we can rejoice in that. This is what we believe and this is what we cling to. But this morning I want to look at these same verses through another lens. Through a lens of looking at Jesus' mysterious and also majestic mission here. Because I think that's what we see in these verses also. Not just the fact that he is intervening and interceding and actually invading these lives in an immediate way. But also he is revealing his mission in yes both a majestic and also a mysterious way. And I think we see that in three quick lessons this morning. Three quick lessons. The first lesson this morning is a lesson about Jesus' authority. A lesson about Jesus' authority. Look at verse 21 with me. It says, And they went to Capernaum and straightway, and immediately on the Sabbath day he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. After Jesus has called these first set of disciples to come and follow him, to be his disciples, we are told that they immediately enter the synagogue. They immediately go there and begin to teach. Jesus doesn't waste time being about his father's business. He immediately goes about preaching the kingdom. Verse 15 says, remarks for us what Jesus was teaching. It says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And though we aren't told necessarily explicitly what Jesus said here, I believe it is much the same. That he is preaching the gospel. He's preaching the fact that he is the gospel. The good news And we aren't told what he's teaching. I think that's an interesting point. Again, that harkens back to what we noted two weeks ago. That Mark focuses on action. He focuses on things that Jesus has done or accomplished or is accomplishing. But we are told also that Jesus' teaching is different. It's immediately received as something that's a different type of teaching. Why? Notice again. For he taught them. They are astonished because he taught them as one that had authority. You see, in this day, oftentimes when people would gather at a synagogue, a synagogue is much like a modern day church, in which the Jews and those who were religious would come together and gather for worship. But their teaching in those times was largely comprised of just a proclamation of law. A recitation, a repeating of law and also other authoritative voices. So a Pharisee or a scribe perhaps might get up and open the scroll and read some of the law, but they would also include some of the quote-unquote "laws" of their peers, of their contemporaries of the day. They're preaching both law and man's law in these synagogues. And these passages emphasized more pressure, more things to do upon these hearers. But Jesus didn't teach like this. You notice that Jesus didn't teach like this because he didn't teach in a way in which he was ascribing to other authorities. He wasn't reading from the law and and quoting from other peers and saying this is why it's authoritative. It says that it's one that had authority. He possessed it. He was an authoritative teacher because he is the authority. He's not just authoritative because of what he's saying. It's because of who he is. His voice is authoritative because it's not just man's voice. It's God's voice. He is Jesus, the son of God. God in the flesh. And when he speaks, he is the word in flesh. The word of God in bodily form. That's why they're astonished. That's why they're amazed. Because he had authority. He possessed authority. And he asserted it and spoke it into existence. Again, it says they are astonished at his doctrine. It says that in verse 22. This isn't merely, I think, an allusion to the, the fact that Jesus could speak well, that he was a good orator, that he had the ability to speak with clarity and clearness and conciseness. I think it's also uh, it's a noticeable difference because he, again, is God in the flesh. He is the creator embodied now speaking to the very things that he spoke into existence. He is God and that's why he has authority. And I think we see that authority in a couple different ways. Two different ways to be exact. Notice in verse 16 through 20. We won't dive into those verses as we did so a couple weeks ago. But here very clearly we see Jesus' authority over our lives. Again he steps in right away as he has been incarnated into this world. And he steps into public ministry. And he invades these fishermen's lives. You are doing your work. Come, be about my work. Come, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men, he says. He exercises his authority over these disciples' lives. And such is what he does with us. Jesus has the authority to overrule your life. Whatever you think you might want to accomplish, Jesus has a better plan. Jesus has a better way. And he can choose to enlist you and employ you into his service in whichever way he chooses. Because he is the king. He says at the very beginning that he's declaring the kingdom of God. And he is that king. He is the ruler of that kingdom and he can employ and enlist whoever he chooses to expand that kingdom. Christ is absolutely sovereign over our entire lives. And there's nothing that can upset or replace his plans for us. That might be difficult to realize, to come to grips with. When we enter seasons of suffering and doubt and confusion and chaos... Seasons in which it doesn't look like God has it under control. And at those very times, he is looking for us to see that he is absolutely sovereign. Yes, even in those moments. Being a disciple then is submitting to this authoritative word. Much like the disciples did. They immediately followed him because they recognized this authority. So too must we. Whatever that looks like. Whatever that entails. Jesus has authority over our lives. But also notice, Jesus has authority over evil. Look at verse, uh, excuse me, look at verse number 23. And there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out saying, let us alone. What have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. You see here, Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And before he is even addresses this man, the demon inside him cries out. He cries out and says, let us alone. Leave us alone, Jesus. So you see, even the demon is aware of the authority of Jesus. Before even Jesus, before he even says a word, this evil spirit knew who he was. Jesus' authority as God in the flesh is so pervasive here as we see that he can push back evil and darkness with a simple command. Notice what he says. And Jesus, verse 25, rebuked him saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. Basically, he's saying, "Be muzzled, uh, be quiet. You have no authority here, demon. I am the authority. Come out of him," and he does so. He doesn't use a magical formula. He doesn't use some mystical incantation or uh, recitation or or anything like that or ritual. He uses just the power of his authoritative voice. Hold thy peace. You don't have authority. And the demon, guess what? The demon obeys him. The demon obeys Christ. Look again. And Jesus rebuked him saying, hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had torn him and cried with a loud voice, he came out. And they were all amazed in so much that they questioned among them saying, what thing is this? This crowd is dumbfounded. There was no ritual that was performed. There was no secret words that were said. Jesus just said a command and the demon obeyed him. What new doctrine is this they say? With, uh, for with authority commandeth he even to the unclean spirits. And they do obey him. They, even the unclean spirits obey him. Evil listens to Jesus' voice. That's how authoritative he is. The lesson of Jesus' authority is realizing that even his voice, the voice that spoke the world into existence, can speak and push back darkness. To speak and get rid of evil. This, from the very beginning, is the way Jesus asserts his authority. But also notice, too, quickly... In verses 24 and 25 and elsewhere, a lesson about Jesus' anonymity. We have Jesus' authority clearly displayed, but also, too, there's a curious thing that happens throughout this first chapter. It's Jesus' anonymity. Look again at verse 24 and 25. Saying, let us alone, what have we to do with thee? Cried the unclean spirit. Thou, Jesus of Nazareth, art thou come to destroy us. I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace, and come out of him. Look at verse 33 and 34. And all the city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many that were sick of diverse diseases, and cast out many devils, and suffered not the devils to speak, because they knew him. There's a mysterious element here. There's another scene too that we'll look at in a second. But a mysterious element here throughout this chapter where Jesus commands these people whom he has cleared, whom he has cleaned. And he commands them not to tell them, to tell others who he is. He does that with the unclean spirit. He does that in verse 34. He tells the demons possessed to not speak. He says, suffered the devils not to speak because they knew him. They knew who he was. Look again at verse 43. Jesus touches a leper here. And he heals the leper of his leprosy. And look at verse 43. Or look at verse 42. And as soon as he had spoken. Immediately after Jesus speaks. The leprosy departed from him. And he was cleansed. And he Jesus straightly charged him. And forthwith sent him away. And saith unto him. See thou thou, say nothing to any man. But go thy way and show thyself to the priest and offer for thyself cleansing for those things which Moses commanded for a testimony unto them. He charges this man, healed of leprosy, not to publicize this miracle. And in fact, he was instead just to follow the normal cultural customs. That when you were cleansed of your leprosy, if it went away, you would go back to the priest and have it confirmed that yes... Your leprosy is gone and you can now be reinstated into society. Jesus here has performed a miracle with the power of his voice. And he says, be silent about it. Don't draw attention to yourself. Why does he do these things? Why does he command the devils not to speak about him? He does the same thing in chapter 3 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 9. He heals someone from illness or from demon possession and charges them, as he does here, to be silent. To hold their peace. Rather than be known, he strives to remain anonymous. Why would Jesus do this? Why would we want to hide who he is? That's a very good question. I'm glad you asked. (laughs) I think it's because of this very reason. Jesus wanted to control how his identity was revealed to the world. Think about this moment in history for a second. Think about what's happening. He's performing miracles, he's healing crowds with just the power of his voice. He's uh, commanding uh, unclean spirits to come out of people, and they are listening. His frame, or excuse me, his fame is spreading fast and wide. Look at verse 28. He's just healed this man of the unclean spirit and says "And immediately, straightway, his fame spread abroad throughout all the region round about Galilee. People are noticing what's happening. That there's this man who can heal people from all illnesses. He can speak and you can be cleansed of all of your diseases, all your ailments. You can be restored to a new person. And that's what he's famous for. He's famous for healing. He's famous for performing miracles, for speaking and removing unclean spirits from folks. And by remaining anonymous, Jesus here is striving to avoid becoming known just for performing miracles. He doesn't want to be known as just the miracle man from Nazareth. As the the good hearted dude from Galilee that, that performs cool things. That speaks and has unclean spirits come out of people in an amazing way. He was trying to avoid what actually happened. Look at verse 45. He commands this leper. Don't talk about this healing. Just go to the priest. Be confirmed and reinstated into society. But notice what happens. The leper went out. And began to publish it much and to blaze abroad the matter insomuch that Jesus could no more openly enter into the city. But was without in desert places and they came to him from every quarter. I think it's so interesting that Jesus says to him don't talk about what has happened. This is a remark not, this example of this leper publishing abroad the news of this Jesus is not what we think it is. It's not an example of faithfulness. This is an example of disobedience. He went abroad and didn't publish about the good news of the Savior. It was the good news of the miracle man from Nazareth that can cleanse people from their sicknesses. This publishing and blazing abroad of this miracle healing is actually an undermining of Jesus' mission. An undermining, a subverting of Jesus' message. Such that now he's forced to, as it says, find solitude in desert places. In solitary places. This leper's testimony, I think, reveals the evil in, in hearing Christian truth and experiencing Christian truth and coming away only impressed with the results, with what Jesus can do for you. But let me tell you Christianity's treasure is Christ himself, not the things that Christ can do for you. It's Christ the person, Christ the actual Savior, not the things that Christ can do. And it's obvious I think from this whole passage. That Jesus isn't opposed to being benevolent to people in his ministry. He healed countless lives. We see that in verses 33 and 34. We don't even know how many people he healed that evening. It just says he healed many. He spoke and he cleansed them from their illnesses and their sicknesses. But I seriously doubt that all of those in that diverse crowd of diseases... Were seeking Jesus for his doctrine. They weren't seeking Jesus. Because he had come declaring the kingdom of, the, of God. Declaring the gospel of God. They came and sought him because of what he could do for them. This is why Jesus wanted to remain anonymous. He wanted to be. Because he was opposed to this idea of just sensational Expectation. He he didn't want to foster a ministry that was always expecting a miracle, a miracle expecting crowd. He wanted to continue his ministry of subverting what we think about the Messiah who the Messiah was, and who uh, Messiah and what he had come to do. Why? Because rather than being known as one who performed miracles, Jesus wanted to be known through the fundamental elements of his ministry, which was death and resurrection. Not healing illnesses. Not performing incredible miracles. Not changing people's lives just in the physical way. He wanted to be known as the savior. The king of the world who would die your death and be resurrected again because he was the king, the son of God. These ailments were completely unexpected and completely foreign to what many had come to know and think about this Messiah. That's why Jesus' desires that his identity remain unknown at this time because he didn't want to be known for miracles. He wanted to be known for his mercy, for eventually his death. Until his hour had come. He repeats that often in the Gospels, that my hour is not yet come. Why? Because he knew what he had come to do. He knew what he had come to accomplish. Which leads us to our third lesson. We had a lesson about Jesus' uh, Jesus's authority. A lesson about Jesus' anonymity. And here we have a lesson about Jesus' assignment. Look again at our text. Back in verse 35. And in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. What does Jesus do after he had spent the evening before speaking and healing uh, uh, hundreds, perhaps even thousands of people with nothing but the power of his voice? What does he do? What does Jesus do? He does, again, an unexpected thing. He doesn't stay and bask in the applause and the accolades of men who come around him and say, Look at this amazing Jesus. Look at this amazing teacher and healer. Actually, he does the opposite. He seeks out solitude and silence. He goes away from the crowd. He goes away from those whom were seeking him just for what he could do. And rather than capitalize on his popularity. So quickly gained. He engages himself in a very private. Very little matter. uh, The matter of prayer. Such that. And he goes so far away. Again look at verse 36. That Simon uh, which is Peter and his followers have to actually follow or hunt him down. Look at verse 36. And Simon and they that were with him followed after him. And when they had found him. Because they were hunting him. They said unto him, all men seek for thee. They're confronting him. Jesus, why did you go away? You had all of this buzz about you. You had all of uh, these people talking about you such that all men are seeking after you. Why not take advantage of this, Jesus? Take advantage of this fame to promote your cause. The cause that you have just told us to come and be a part of. And Jesus' response to them is basically, that's not the point. Look at verse 38. And he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. You've missed the point. I have not come to just gather up crowds and build a buzz and, and be known for my miracles. My mission is much greater than that. You see, again, the disciples had a, had a, had a view of Jesus' mission that was too narrow, too, too small. Their idea, one writer says it this way. Their idea of Jesus' ministry was narrower than his own. They conceived of it as measured by men's seeking of Jesus. He, that is Jesus, measured it by his seeking of men. Notice, he says, I have to go to the next town's. I have to preach there also. This was his mission. We see, I think here we're confronted with this truth. The fact that Jesus was not incarnated to make your life better. He wasn't incarnated to make your life easier. And this word of God that we have before us isn't like God's divine vending machine in which we can plug in a certain amount of things and it will spit out blessings to us. That's not what Jesus had come to do. He wasn't in the business of just meeting needs. Jesus was in the business and still is of saving souls. Of saving people's lives. All of these healings. All of these exorcisms. All of these incredible miracles. Were not Jesus' primary assignment. They were meant to augment his true mission. Which is the redemption and restoration. And the recreation of all things. Like he says in Revelation 21.5. That he has come to make all things new. These miracles were meant to point to that fact. That he is the God who can make all things new. They were meant to accentuate that fact. The fact of his deity. The fact of his sovereignty over all life. The miracles weren't his purpose. They weren't his mission. He was pointing to himself through those. Jesus' assignment here wasn't just to capture men's attention. Just to say, look at me. I can do these incredible things. His mission was to proclaim the gospel. To proclaim very, very in fact, the good news about himself. Which he would eventually get into talking about. His very own passion and death. His very own crucifixion and resurrection. That these very people who are seeking him for what he would do. Are the very people he would one day die for. This was his mission. This was Jesus' assignment. It wasn't a political one, it wasn't an economic one, it wasn't a humanitarian one. His mission was redemption. His mission was death. And the atonement on the cross, not just ascension to a man-made throne in which he could rule and serve and and have his way. His purpose was to be baptized in our death. That we might have the forgiveness and the remission of sins, as it says in the earlier part of chapter 1. This was his mission. This was his assignment. To be baptized in our death. And I think there's no better glimpse of this. Than what we have here at the end of this chapter. Look with me quickly. At verse 41. Excuse me verse 40. And there came a leper to him. Beseeching him. And kneeling down to him. And saying unto him. If thou wilt thou canst make me clean. And Jesus moved with compassion. put forth his hand and touched him. The embodiment of Jesus' assignment is seen right here in this little touch. Think about this scene. Think about this with me. You have this leper. He's a leper. Perhaps he's been that way for years. His condition has uh, driven him from society. He lives on the outskirts of town. Away from his family. Away from his friends. Away from those with whom he was closest to. And he lives with other outcasts, other lepers. And he has not felt the warmth of his wife's hand or the kiss of his children's uh, lips or the embrace perhaps of friends in decades. Because he is unclean, he is a leper. And yet here, Jesus touches him. Jesus, without hesitation, puts forth his hand and touches him. You think about how incredible just that touch must have been to the life of this leper who hasn't been felt anyone's touch for decades and years. And yet here Jesus, this teacher, disregards all of the restrictions in the Mosaic law on touching unclean people. And instead he says that compassion is greater. That my display of love is greater. And he touches this leper and heals him. You see, before Jesus says anything, it says he was moved with compassion, put forth his hand, and touched him, and saith unto him, I will be thou clean. But before Jesus even said a word, he had demonstrated the gospel and the truth of God's gospel to this man. The fact that he is unafraid of our filth, that he is unafraid of our sin. This is what's embodied in this touch of Jesus. And in fact you could say that this touch here and the touch of Simon Peter's mother-in-law earlier in verse 30. That those touching of unclean, unhealthy people is a living parable of Jesus' entire ministry. Is that he has come forth to touch the lives of the unclean and make them clean because of his cleanliness. He came touching people. He came intent on affecting individual lives. You could say this. That as we have it here, that sinners are Jesus' assignment. I think very truthfully that that is the case. His assignment wasn't healing uh, people from demon possession, though that is good and true and right. His assignment wasn't just feeding 5,000 people. So that it's true and good and right. His mission, his assignment was the eradication of sin. And how does he do that? By taking that sin onto himself. That is his mission. That is why he is here. This is what we have in this gospel. The gospel declares to us that the creator God, the creator of all the universe, the savior king has come close. Close enough to touch unclean people. Touch untouchable people. To save unsavable people. This is the embodiment of this touch. It's the wonder of wonders. It's the mystery of salvation that through Jesus' own passion and death, we are healed, we are cleansed, we are saved. This is his assignment. This is his mission. Because he's not just... He's not, Jesus isn't just interested in, in erasing the effects of sin. Your ailments, your injuries, your weaknesses. He is interested in annihilating sin, as we said, by taking it on himself. His mission was to heal mankind's deeper, darker brokenness. Not just their sickness, but their sin. This is what Jesus has done for you. This is what Jesus has done for all of us. This is the good news of the gospel. That Jesus' assignment was taking on your sin. Do you then, this morning, believe in that Jesus? That King Christ who has come to save us from our sins by taking them on himself? Or do you just want Jesus for what he can do for you? As sort of a divine vending machine God that can meet our needs and help us out when time is rough. This is Jesus, our Savior, our healer, yes, but our Redeemer and King, our unexpected Messiah. Let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer for a moment.